Do, 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 do. How are we doing? Good to see you. Uh, so for those of you who are new, my name is Ryan. Uh, I'm on the teaching team here at Door Creek. Uh, during the week, you can find me up at the DeForest campus. It's great to be here with you at Sprecher. And hello to everyone uh, watching uh, over at the chapel and uh, everyone who's a part of us in DeForest. And of course, if you're joining us online or through the podcast, welcome. Glad you're here. Happy Father's Day weekend. I'm pretty sure my kids don't even know it's Father's Day. So it's kind of awkward. It's like, do you remind them? Like, hey, you know, tomorrow's Father's Day, right? So uh, but I don't know, they're, they're probably going to ask me for something that they want, and I'll be like, it's Father's Day, so no, uh, that's just the way I roll, just kidding. Uh, so uh, thanks for joining us. We are continuing in our series called Big Mistake, looking at the kind of facepalm moments uh, of biblical characters, often our heroes in the Bible, and what can we learn from them? How can we grow in God's grace and see that uh, our mistakes are not the end of the story, that Jesus actually can, uh, can write a better story through us and, and, and by his grace. Um, so today, uh, the message is called Dark Horse Messiah, and if the message stinks, at least it's a cool punk band name that I might try to use later. Dark Horse Messiah. So what's a dark horse? Uh, A dark horse is a champion that you never saw coming, right? So uh, you might be familiar with the phrase. It comes from this kind of old uh, novel written in the 1800s by someone named Benjamin Disraeli. There's this one scene in the story where he uh, is at like a horse race and uh, he's watching the race and he's put his money on the horse and then out of nowhere comes what he calls the dark horse that no one even considered a competitor zooming by everyone else and winning to everyone's shock and awe. The dark horse takes all. And, and in America, in our culture, we love dark horse stories, right? It's Susan Boyle coming out of nowhere and winning Britain's Got Talent, Right? It's uh, in 1998, um, uh, what football team was it? There was the St. Louis Rams, right? So they went from finishing in their, their year with a 4-12 and record. It's almost like Vikings level uh, record. And then the very next year, I'm a Vikings fan, I can say that. The very next year, 1999, they win the Super Bowl, right? The dark horse. We love these stories. When I was a kid, as a, like a nine-year-old, it was Rocky Balboa. And I would have sleepovers with my friends and we would watch Rocky and we'd get so amped up and we would box each other. But my friend only had one pair of gloves so we would each get one. And I always got the left hand and I would be like, bam. And he was taller than me. And I would try to swing and hit him and bam. And and that's what boys do. Maybe girls too. I don't know. I think girls are smarter than that. Um, And it's funny because we, we were like wanting to be Rocky, right? No one wanted to be Apollo Creed or Ivan Drago or, or Mr. T. Well, okay, maybe we did want to be Mr. T, but, but we were like, <clears throat> we wanted to be the protagonist. We wanted to be the hero in our own stories because we love dark horror stories. We want to be the underdog, right? We want to be the one that proves the haters wrong, who comes out of nowhere. But if you do the math, <laughs> I'm not sure it always works out that way. Like none of us, none of us want to be the Goliath in the David and Goliath story. Why is that? It's because, because no one wants to be on the wrong side of history. Nobody wants that. No one thinks that they're on the wrong side of history, but sometimes we are. Sometimes we are. And, and the trick is how do we recognize it 
before we make the big mistake of missing something really, really important. And we're looking at 1 Samuel 25, and there's this guy named Nabal, which literally means fool, and he misses David. Like, he misses that David is his king, and he comes to ruin for it. And we do the same thing with Jesus. We miss that he is the dark horse Messiah. And the very thing that God is trying to do to save us, we actually oppose and we're antagonistic against in lots of different ways. So that's what we're looking at today. Here's the case I want to make. That inside of every one of us is a fool that refuses to recognize the dark horse Messiah. And it brings us to ruin. But wisdom, wisdom leads to peace in Jesus. Shall we dive in? Open your Bibles or turn them on to 1 Samuel chapter 25. 1 Samuel 25. We're going to do the whole chapter. Uh, we're not going to have the words on the screen, so just kind of follow along. Um, so let me just do a little setup here. So we're about to zoom in on a key kind of moment in Israel's history. So Israel, as you may know, had been called out of slavery in Egypt and, and their whole purpose was to reflect God's justice and generosity to the whole world and invite the whole world into relationship with God. But how were they doing at that? Not so great. They actually ended up looking pretty much like their idol-worshiping neighbors. So God sent all these these leaders called judges who would come in and they would restore Israel for a while, but then they would fall back. And it was a cycle for 300 years until finally Samuel, the last of the judges, lived and he anointed David as king. And this is how we zoom in here. Verse one, now Samuel died and all Israel assembled and mourned for him. Then David moved into the desert of Paran. So this, this very first verse, it tells us what's going on. So 300 years of judges was gone. The age of judges was, was uh, setting. And the new uh, season of kings in Israel was dawning. And David was like the rising star, right? So you might know David, this story, David the shepherd boy with his sling, he got Goliath. Uh, everyone knew about David and David had been anointed king, but he wasn't enthroned yet. Saul was the king of Israel. And David was so popular and so well received that David, uh, he, he drove people to jealousy, including Saul. And so Saul's mission in life was to hunt David down and kill him. So David disappears. He goes into hiding. He goes underground. But he doesn't just sit there and wait for Saul to die. What he does is he starts doing stuff that good kings do, creating justice, protecting people. And while he was in this wilderness of Paran, he was, um, he was uh, like keeping um, marauders and raiders, like Philistine raiders from robbing the shepherds and, and the, the tribesmen that, that lived there. And pretty soon, kind of these dis disenfranchised people started to gather to him until he had like 600 warriors, basically. It was like Robin Hood and the Merry Men, and they were doing good stuff. And now we go to verse 2. A certain man in Maon who had property there at Carmel was very wealthy. He had a thousand goats and a thousand sheep, which he was shearing in Carmel. His name was Nabal. His wife's name was Abigail. 
She was an intelligent and beautiful woman, but her husband was surly. Isn't that a great, great word? Surly and mean in his dealings. He was a Calebite. Okay. So David's doing his thing, protecting the people around him, and one of the people, like one of the families was this very prominent family, Nabal's family. They, they were very wealthy. They had lots of like uh, property and, and, and uh, places where they would take their livestock to graze, including this area that bordered the wilderness where David was, and he was protecting them there. He was protecting them. And so there are two key figures in the story other than David. We, we hear uh, of Nabal, whose name literally means fool, okay? So like what kind of parents does that, right? Fool. Okay, so pretty much what every single commentator will tell you is that um, by no means was his name actually fool. So the brilliance of the biblical authors, what they're doing is they're trying to create for us like an archetype. So fool, here what they're saying is don't be like this guy, right? Don't be that guy. Don't be the fool. Okay, so there's Nabal, and then there's Abigail, who is completely the opposite. She's intelligent, and she's beautiful. And you kind of get the sense that there's this, like, who's the boss dynamic happening here. Remember that show? Like, he's making a mess and stepping on things, and, and she's just kind of tiptoeing around on eggshells, like, cleaning up after him. Not a healthy uh, marriage situation. Okay, verse 4. While David was in the wilderness, he heard that Nabal was shearing sheep. Well, not him, but his staff. So he sent ten young men and said to them, Go up to Nabal at Carmel and greet him in my name. Say to him, Long life to you, good health to you and your household, and good health to all that is yours. In other words, like, peace to you and your family and everything you own. This is holistic blessing that David wanted to send to Nabal. And, and tell, tell him, now I hear that it is sheep shearing time. When your shepherds were with us, we did not mistreat them. And the whole time they were at Carmel, nothing of theirs was missing, right? So they protected them. They took care of them. They watched out for them. Ask your own servants and they'll tell you. Therefore, be favorable to my men since we have come at a festive time. So the sheep shearing time happened twice a year in Israel and it was a big party. It was like when you... Pull out all the stops and the wine flows freely, maybe a little bit too freely, and you just celebrate the goodness, the rich abundance that God has given and, and through um, his provision through the land. It's a festive time. So please give your servants and your son David, notice the, the humble language there, whatever you can find for them. When David's men arrived, they gave Nabal this message in David's name, then they waited. Okay. So what is David doing? He's sending kind of this delegate of ambassadors asking Nabal really two things. First of all, hey, how about a little goodwill kind of payment for our services here in the wilderness? We, we've got this restoration movement happening here. We've got 600 hungry mouths to feed. Uh, we could use your support. So that's kind of one level. The other level is that David has been anointed king, but he's not enthroned yet. So kind of what he's starting to do is to lay out, like, this is my agenda, right? I'm here to restore justice and safety and protection. Are you with me, Nabal? Do you want to be part of this? It's this invitation, so let's see what Nabal's response is. In verse 10, Nabal answered David's servants, who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? 
Many servants are breaking away from their masters these days, referring to how David is uh, hiding from Saul. Why should I take my bread and water and the meat I have slaughtered for my shearers and give it to men coming from who knows where? So David's men turned around and went back, and when they arrived, they repeated every word. Look in verse 13, what does David do? He said to his men, each of you strap on your sword. You don't want to hear that from David. So they did, and David strapped his on as well. About 400 men went up with David, while 200 stayed with the supplies. Part of me wonders, how did he decide? Like, uh, yeah, thanks for volunteering, but why don't you stay and watch the bags? I wouldn't want to be that guy. Anyway, so, so what, what's happening here? Like, why is David so peeved, right? What's going on? And we get a sense, like we, we can actually kind of hear his little internal dialogue if we skip to verse 21. So let's do that. David had just said, it's been useless, all my watching over this fellow's property in the wilderness so that nothing of his was missing. And he has paid me back evil for good. May God deal with David, be it ever so severely, if by morning I leave alive one male of all who belong to him. So David, he's been watching out for Nabal, watching out for his property and over his stuff and his staff, and David's response is to purge Nabal's family name from the region. Like, is this a good thing that David's doing? No, no, this is, this is bad, bad David. Like, don't be like David. But our, our message today isn't on David's mistakes, although they are plentiful in here. In fact, what I can say is David probably comes as close as any king in Israel comes to really getting it right, but he still falls far short, pointing us to our need for a better king, which we have in Jesus. But let's set that aside right now because we're focusing on Nabal. In Nabal's response, I think we have three big mistakes Three things that really put what a fool does, like how a fool misses the dark horse Messiah that we can and hopefully hear and do a little self-reflection and then look to see if we can find any of God's wisdom um, so we don't make the same mistakes. So number one, three things. Number one, a fool denies the king's identity. Denies the king's identity. So look at what Nabal said in verse 10. How did, how did Nabal answer David's servants? He said, who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? So question, was he asking that because he didn't know who David was? He totally knew who David was. He knew who his father was. Uh, so in 1 Samuel, if you kind of read all the way through it, you'll find like three or four times where they're singing pop songs about David. It's really catchy. It's like, Saul has killed his thousands, but David is ten thousands. Everyone knew the song, top 40. The, the big mistake th that Nabal made wasn't that he didn't know about David, it's that he didn't accept David's identity. He didn't accept that he was the, the king, the coming king. He heard the news about David, he heard about David, but he didn't pay attention to the magnitude of David's claim. Because by coming to Nabal and asking for support, asking for allegiance, David was putting a huge claim about himself out there that he is the king. 
So uh, a few weeks ago, I was sitting at home doing a bunch of homework and, and, and study, super just kind of overwhelmed and, and busy, and I saw that I had this voicemail. So I listened, and it was kind of this robotic voice. Maybe you've heard something like this, and it was like, Ryan, your uh, social security number has been, um, uh, has been suspended because of fraudulent activity. Some of you are nodding. You know what I'm talking about. Like, okay, so call this number uh, so we can get this sorted out. I'm like, oh, this is probably a scam, right? But, but what if it's not, right? What if it's not? So I was like, oh, I was tempted to just kind of delete the voicemail and go on with my day and just hope for the best. But what if my social security number was actually suspended? So I did what any reasonable person would do, and I Googled it. And I found this article on, an, on the IRS website uh, ex- like describing this exact situation and saying that it was a scam. I was like, okay, phew. Well, why would I take time out of my busy day to do that? Well, it's because of the magnitude of the claim, right? And, and so when we are talking about Jesus, and this is for you, maybe if you're not a believer or, if, or you're like skeptic or you've heard something that's caused you to doubt what Jesus says about himself, like if that's you, just consider for a moment the magnitude of Jesus' claim. He's not just saying he's a good teacher or, or a, a good model to follow. He's saying that he's God and that we should worship him and that we're gonna have to answer to him for our entire lives, how we've lived our lives out. So if you walk away from Jesus, don't do it just because you have a doubt about who Jesus is. Do it like you have to know that, that what Jesus is saying about himself isn't true because of the magnitude of his claim. Because if there's a chance that you miss Jesus, like if he's actually the Messiah and you miss it, your life is ruined. So that's, that's the first thing, denying the king's identity. Watch out for that. And because what that does is it blinds us to the kindness of the king. And that's number two, the second big mistake. A fool despises the king's kindness. Look at verse 11. What does Nabal say? He says, why should I take my bread and water and the meat I have slaughtered for my shearers and give it to men coming from who knows where? What was David doing in the desert? He was protecting Nabal's stuff and his property. If Nabal was having a good year in business, like he totally owed that to David, right? So when David comes and asks, like, hey, you're having a feast, can, can I share in this with you? What should have Nabal said? Of course, thank you so much. In fact, Nabal probably should have been proactive and gone to David and said, thank you. How can I ever repay you for what you're doing? But he didn't do that. It's almost as if he was saying, David, I'll take the good stuff you're doing for me, but, but don't expect anything from me. Ingratitude. Ingratitude in some ways is worse than revenge because what, what is revenge? Revenge is when Uh, I do something terrible to you and you do something terrible back to me, right? But ingratitude is when I do something kind to you and you repay that with something terrible. You see? Acts chapter 14, 17 touches on the kindness of God. It says, he has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides 
you with plenty of food and fills your heart with joy. So what is God providing? He's providing constant sustenance and and provision. And often, we take for granted the very things that most deserve our gratitude. Like one of the most ironic things, I think, is, is seeing someone who's breathing oxygen say, God, what have you ever done for me? And, and this happens to all of us. Like, have you ever been frustrated when you're praying for one specific thing? Like, God, would you heal me? Like right now, as a pastor, I'm privileged to be just kind of journeying with several people uh, walking through deep, deep valleys, uh, diseases, sicknesses, uh, anxiety, like you, you can't believe. And, and we're praying for these things together, but when it crosses that line into frustration, like, God, why aren't you taking care of this for me, what happens is we lose sight of the billion things that he's doing to sustain us because we're so focused on the one thing that he's not doing for us. The fastest way to spiritual poverty is to focus on what we, what we don't have. Like, just take a second. Are, are we aware of the myriad of ways, the invisible ways that God is holding our universe together. Like we have bodies that can consume and digest tater tot casserole to give us energy to go play softball, right? We have clouds that are constantly giving us access to clean, renewable drinking water without us doing a single thing. We have all of these predictable, observable patterns in chemistry and biology that give us things like ibuprofen and chemotherapy and goldfish snacks. (laughs) So these first two mistakes really culminate in, in the third mistake, which is a fool disregards the king's authority. So David had been anointed king, but Nabal, he was still walking around like he was subject to no one. David, you can't tell me what to do with my stuff. And and this is like ouch time. I almost didn't say this. Because in our culture, uh, we consider uh, we consider our rights as as really really untouchable and sacred. It's my body, don't tell me what to do with it. It's my time, it's my money. And guys, this is embedded in us. So when Jesus walks around like he owns the place, we have a hard time with that. And we all have our favorite parts of scripture and we have other parts we'd rather not pay attention to. Like some of us are like, you know, Jesus, I love your attention to the poor, and I love the way you treat the downtrodden, but, but don't tell me who I can have sex with and who I can't. It's my body, stay away. It, it's moral pride, that's what it is. It's moral pride that, that causes us to say, you know, Jesus, what you say about family values and divorce, that's great, but you know what? Don't tell me to pray for the political leader on the other side of the aisle. I'm not gonna do that. They represent everything that's wrong with my country. You just don't get it. But we do this. And, and nothing puts like the human superiority complex on display like a child interacting with a digital assistant. Have you ever seen this? My kids have Alexas. It's like 
hilarious and tragic at the same time. They're like, Alexa, tell me a joke. Alexa, read me a story. No, not that one. You're dumb, Alexa. It's, it's terrifying. It's like watching your toddler turn into a tyrant and you give them unbridled power over a robot, right? It's, it's just terrifying. It's like Devil Wears Prada. And, and so you get, you get a sense of how this plays out in the story in, in verse 36. So go ahead and check this out in your Bibles. It says, when Abigail went to Nabal. So Abigail meets with David. We're skipping ahead a little bit. After that, she goes and she goes back to her husband, Nabal. And he was in the house. What was he doing? Holding a banquet like that of a king. David, you're not the king. Who was living like a king? Nabal was. He was in high spirits and drunk as a skunk. I'm pretty sure that's what it says in the Hebrew. So she told him nothing at all until daybreak. So what's the irony here? David is the king and Nabal is strutting around acting like a king in someone else's kingdom. He's squatting in David's kingdom. It's pride. He couldn't handle someone else being an authority because when you're proud, what you do is you interpret any kind of authority as an instrument to control you and use you. But when you're humble, authority is not an instrument of control. It's an instrument of peace. And and when you're humble, you can actually begin to trust that maybe there, there is a moral authority out there in God that's not trying to control you for their own his own benefit, but he's trying to set you free. And that he's even done that at the expense of his very life. The, the telltale characteristics of a fool, the three big mistakes, denial, ingratitude, pride. And in this story, Nabal puts those all on display for us. Hopefully we can self-reflect a little bit, but thankfully, Abigail shows us the, the path of the wise. So let's check this out. Let's keep, let's keep going. So if Nabal is a denier, Abigail is observant. She listens. In verse 14, here's what it says. One of the servants told Abigail, Nabal's wife, David sent messengers from the wilderness to give our master his greetings, but he hurled insults at them. Yet these men were very good to us. Verse 17, now think it over. Think it over, Abigail, and see what you can do because disaster is hanging over our master and his whole household. He is such a wicked man that no one can talk to him. God, have mercy on me if anyone ever says that about me, right? So, so Nabal and Abigail, they both heard the same message. The difference is that Abigail listened. She listened She didn't ignore the truth just because it was inconvenient. It's a tricky thing. No one wants to be, no one thinks of themselves as the wrong side of history. Proverbs 3 talks about this. In verse 7, do not be wise in your own eyes. Easy for you to say. Fear the Lord and shun evil. This will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. So is health attained by staying away from the doctor and never hearing bad news? No. Health starts with the right diagnosis. So if you're stuck in anger or depression or guilt or anxiety, 
worry, it, it may be because you're fearing the very truth that's going to set you free. So we see how Abigail like overcame this denial with just by listening. Now let's look at her incredible gratitude. So where Nabal was ungrateful, we see that Abigail was, was grateful. Look in verse 18. Abigail acted quickly. She took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five dressed sheep. So basically she put a whole feast together and she loaded them on donkeys. It's like the first Uber Eats. She, what was happening? She was aware of, of David's kindness and wanted to reflect that back to him and share that with him. And what gratitude does is it tunes us into the frequency of God's kindness. And if you're wondering, what is God doing for me? You're tuned into the wrong frequency. Joy comes not when we have everything we want, but when we're conscious of what we have. Psychologists will tell us that, that uh, gratitude and generosity are really the, the two sides of the same coin. And so here's kind of a little test. If you find giving difficult, it may be because you're not aware of how much you've been given. Gratitude. And thinking about the kindness of God humbles us, which leads us to the, the last thing where Nabal disregarded the king's authority. Abigail humbled herself. Look in verse 23. When Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey and bowed down before David with her face to the ground. And this was not like a, a female, like subservient kind of thing. No, that, that's not what this is at all because she was, she was a powerful woman, wealthy, wise, beautiful. She had it all, but she knew that she was in the presence of a king. And when you're in the presence of a king, all that takes a back seat. And she gives the longest speech of any woman in the Old Testament and seven times in that speech, she calls herself his servant. His servant. Why? Well, it's because she knew that everything she had wasn't of her own accord, that, it, that actually she was a steward of what was in David's kingdom. She was humble. So, so what hope is there for a Nabal? What hope is there for a fool? Can we change? And the good news is yes. And Abigail shows us the way forward. Verse 24, she falls at David's feet and says, pardon your servant, my Lord. Let me speak to you. Hear what your servant has to say. Verse 25, get this. Please pay no attention, my Lord, to that wicked man, Nabal. He's just like his name. His name means fool and folly goes with him. As for me, your servant, I did not see the man my Lord had sent. So David receives what she brings, says, go home in peace. I've granted your request. And then Abigail goes home and she sees Nabal partying like a king, drunk out of his mind. So she just gives him time to sober up. And then, okay, verse uh, 37, in the morning when Nabal was sober, his wife told him all these things and, and see what happens here in verse 37. And his heart failed him and he became like a stone. So most commentators look at that and they go, he probably had a stroke. And 10 days later, he died. He had a stroke, went into a coma. 10 days later, he died. Do you know what I think gave him a stroke other than like poor eating and drinking habits? I think it's that he realized that when he was 
acting like a raging fool, strutting around like he owned the place, living in his own grand illusions that his wife was risking her life to save his. And that got him. I think it got him. I would love to just imagine that, that somehow in those 10 days that Nabal came to his senses and he said, I'm sorry. We don't know. I'm, I'm just speculating. But we need, we need a moment. <clears throat> Fools need a moment to become wise. So uh, in, in Back to the Future, that great historical documentary about the future, now our past, um, there's this great scene uh, in, I think it's the first one. So Marty and Doc are in the, the 1950s and, and they're trying to figure out how to send the DeLorean back to the future. 1985, wow, I'm old. Uh, anyway, and, and, and there's a scene where, where uh, Doc is like, and it, it needs 1.21 gigawatts and his current self is like, 1.21 gigawatts, right? But fools need this, this power surge Fools need a power surge in order to become wise. And the Bible tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In in Abigail's speech, she said, pay no attention to Nabal. He's just a fool. It reminds me of what Jesus said when he was hanging on the cross. Looking at those soldiers who had just crucified him, saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. On the cross, Jesus interceded for every fool that's ever lived, including you and I. The path to wisdom starts at the cross. That's our moment. Now, I just want to talk to non-believers who who might happen to be here, and then believers, because what do we do with this? So if you're not a believer or, or maybe you're, you're kind of kicking the tires on the whole Jesus thing or, or maybe you're, you've, you've professed your faith but you're just kind of working through some doubts, some skepticism, let me just encourage you with this. Like, <clears throat> we can agree. Accepting Jesus' authority, like accepting him as our Messiah, it is a difficult thing. It's hard. It's true. The Apostle Paul actually calls that a stumbling block. And not everyone, not everyone gets there. Why? Why is it so difficult? I think a lot, a lot of non-believers that I know, they see Jesus as a threat to their identity. Like, if I believe that Jesus is, is more than just a good person, that if he's actually who he says he is, and more than just a good teacher, then, then that will actually fundamentally change who I am if I respond to him, if I believe in him. And guys, the story in our culture is that you need to be you. You need to be the, the truest you that you can be. And, and that is, that's kind of our cultural gospel. And this cuts into that. But just take a moment. Like, who, who am I, really? How do we know who we are? And, and what if that question of who am I, who am I supposed to be on my own, what if we're not actually equipped to answer that question? Like, what if forming my identity is actually the very thing that's crushing the life out of me? It, it, chasing this dream and that dream, 
following this bodily urge and that bodily urge, buying into this philosophy and that philosophy. I mean, it's exhausting, isn't it? Constantly reinventing ourselves. And if that's you, if you're, if you're working toward your authentic self, good on you, I just want to just ask, gently ask, how's it going? Like, really, how are you? Do you have joy? Does it last? If your circumstances are, are really great right now, that's great for you, but what if they change? What then? How are your relationships? And let me just pose this question, if that's you, what if accepting Jesus' authority is the very thing that lets, lets you finally discover your true identity, finally sets you free to be your real self in him? Because God's vision for your identity and for mine is not that we would disappear into a religious system. It's that we would discover what it is to be a child of God. Fully known and fully loved at the same time. Imagine that. To be accepted. To be swept up in a multi-ethnic global restoration movement. Bringing peace bringing heaven to earth. That's God's vision for our identity. So if that's you, let me just encourage you, look at the source. Don't just walk away. What Jesus is claiming about himself is too, too big, too important to walk away just because of a doubt. Like you just, you gotta know before you walk away. Read the Gospel of Mark. It's the shortest gospel in the Bible. You can read it, read through it in less than an hour. We've got a page on our website called Exploring Christianity with, uh, just with messages, teachings that answer a whole bunch of different questions like is Jesus the only way to God? Can we really trust the Bible? Check that out, okay? Email me, rmorrison at doorcreekchurch.org. Okay, so, so that's non-believers. Believers. So Jesus' kingdom, it extends to to every corner of our world and every corner of our lives. Why? Because Jesus is hungry for control? Nope. It's because he's trying to bring peace and healing and justice and generosity everywhere. That's what he's about. And he's inviting us to take part of that. Now, it's possible that we can be like aligned with God and have, like, give our allegiance to Jesus and be totally um, allied with him in, in lots of parts of, of that movement, lots of parts of our lives, but be still sitting on a throne in another part. Jesus wants to bring peace and justice to every part of our lives. So let me just give this to you as, as an example. So uh, a couple of weeks ago, our washing machine went out and it's, you know, my wife's like, let's just get a new washing machine. I'm like, no, I'm going to do it. I can't do it. I'm, I'm literally the worst person on the planet to try to fix things. And I know that about myself, but I still do it. Pride? Yes. And so anyway, I was, I was working on it. And so I have this thing I've always kind of been aware of about myself is that I get like really ragey when, when I'm working on stuff because it never goes well. But I've always excused it. It's just the way I am, right? And my wife came down, how's it going? And I was like, Ugh. and she was like, oh, okay, fine. She walks away. <laughs> and the next morning, I'm reading Ephesians 4.31, and it says this, put aside bitterness, 
rage and anger and a light bulb turned on for me and I realized I am squatting in Jesus' kingdom. Jesus is the king of my emotions and I have been totally subverting his authority. And I went to my wife and I said, do I do this? She's like, oh yeah, you do this. Like, okay. So I got off the throne of my emotions and I've been inviting Jesus into that place since then. So far, so good. What is it for you? Is it maybe a craft beer hobby that is really thinly veiled alcoholism? Is it like a fine art sensibility that's really kind of a veil for pornography use? Is it the cold shoulder that, that you give to your spouse? Your grumpiness in the morning? Oh, it's just who I am. Like, what about sharing prayer requests that are really, it's really about gossip and getting juicy, juicy morsels? What if we invited Jesus to bring his grace and his healing and his peace into every corner of our lives? So, so there you go. Let's pray. God, you have invited us into your restoration movement. You've come so that, that we could have life, but not just life going through the motions, but rich, abundant, true, eternal life. So God, we want to say yes to you. We don't want to miss you and miss what you're doing. Give us the grace that we need to do that. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.